Just two really quick announcements before we begin today. And uh, that is tonight when the Pettit team is here, we will take an offering for them. And uh, we'd like to send them away with some money for some Christmas presents and that sort of thing. So do come tonight and bring your friend if you can. And the gospel will be shared tonight. But if you can and uh, want to help out and give a little offering for them, that would be fine. We did take an offering for them, if you remember way back, and tried to get them out on the road and try to pick up some of the expenses for buying the van, the trailer, and so forth, and helping them out, because we are the sending church, of course, for Brother Steve. But uh, tonight, if you'd like to, feel free to give uh, for the team itself. And then uh, on Wednesday, we will be taking a vote on the proposal that we put to you a couple weeks ago, and uh, we gave you some more detail a couple weeks ago on a Wednesday, and we are voting to uh, make a significant contribution to Sister Karen Kajalak's retirement account. And uh, if you have any questions about that, would you ask myself or Brother Bert or any of the elders for that matter? And uh, we will take a vote on that this coming Wednesday. All right, so come, if you would, Wednesday, and we'll resume our study of James and also take that vote for Sister Karen. Well, let's return to John chapter 14. Here we find Jesus at the very hinge of human history. We have come to that decisive moment when Jesus will suffer and die in the old creation and resurrect to new life in the new creation. He will shortly ascend to the Father's right hand, where he is even now preparing the new creation. When Jesus ascends from his grave to a throne in heaven, he will leave behind the responsibility of opening his kingdom to the apostles. He will give to them the keys of the kingdom to go out and preach his kingdom. And the apostles of the Lamb will be tasked with founding the church of God and the chief cornerstone of Christ and his resurrection. The world that was lost in Adam is set to be reconquered through the second Adam. As he commissions his apostles to carry forward his mission to the ends of the earth. Now, do the disciples understand all this? Not yet. The New Testament is clear. They could not possibly have understood without the Holy Spirit's illumination. If you understand, it's because of the Holy Spirit's work in your own heart. The Spirit, though, was promised in verses 15 through 17. And several more times throughout the remainder of the discourse. Now, we have much to learn about the Holy Spirit, but today we will discover that the coming of the Holy Spirit actually guarantees that the disciples will not be orphaned in the world. And that's a subject that Jesus now turns to, beginning with verse 18. I will not leave you. As orphans, I will come to you. Yet a little while, and the world will see me no more. But you will see me, because I live, you also will live. In that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, remember Judas Iscariot has already left to betray Jesus. This is the other Judas. 
said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. And the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. On verse 18, Jesus puts an image into our minds, that of the orphan. The Old Testament has numerous references to Yahweh's care for the orphan. In fact, the book of Deuteronomy alone has some 11 references to the fatherless, demonstrating God's profound care for neglected children. The prophet Isaiah tells us that one of the reasons Yahweh actually sent the people into captivity was their refusal to care for the orphan. Hardly a more tragic outcome of the fall is the ever-present reality of children being orphaned in the world. Some through neglect, some through wars, still others through the premature death of their parents, or through drug addictions, or imprisonment, imprisonment. Orphans suffer staggeringly high rates of malnutrition, disease, sexual abuse, poverty, and premature death. So Jesus deliberately chooses the image of an orphan to describe how the disciples will feel the next day when his life expires on a cross. Their sense of abandonment must have been heightened when the disciples recalled Jesus' earlier words in Matthew 16. Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Well, if Jesus has gone to a cross, will his orphans follow him to a cross? A fear of abandonment coupled with a fear of martyrdom must have just seized the disciples' hearts. The very next day, when darkness descended over Jerusalem for three long hours. What thoughts were on the disciples' minds the next evening when Jesus was entombed? He's gone. He's gone. They have just experienced the most agonizing 24 hours of their entire lives. Now what? He's gone. When you look into the hungry eyes of an orphan, you can actually feel the fear. When you walk into the sleeping ward of an orphanage in many parts of the world, they are eerily silent. Orphans learn from a very young age that when they cry out in the night, no one comes for them. As humans made in the image and likeness of God, we were made for relationships. God has always been an interpersonal Trinitarian God with three distinct persons in holy union. And from the beginning of the creation, God actually ordained a three-way relationship between humans, a husband, a wife, and children. The family reflects the interpersonal character of God. And even in an unfallen world, 
God said, it is not good for man to be alone. Quite literally, when people live in radical isolation, they lose their own sense of identity. Who are you if you have no one to love or no one to be loved by, no one to share life with, no one with whom to exercise interpersonal relationships, no family at all? Now the great fear the disciples have to cope with is that they will, in fact, be orphaned in a world that crucified their leader. And that's why Jesus offers words of reassurance in verse 18. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. But what does that mean? In what sense has Jesus come back to them? This verse is surprisingly difficult to interpret. There are at least three interpretations. First, Jesus could be referring to his imminent resurrection. He's already told the disciples three recorded times that he would die in Jerusalem and be raised. Second, Jesus could be referring to the coming of the Holy Spirit, whom he has just promised to send. If Jesus is God and the Spirit is God, then the coming of the Spirit is equivalent to Jesus coming back to them. And thirdly, Jesus could be referring to his second coming at the end of the age. The Jews fervently believed the Messiah would come at the end of human history, What they did not understand is that the Messiah would show up in the middle of human history and then come back. So Jesus could be referring to his second coming. So which of these three possibilities should we embrace? Well, let's work through them one by one. Here we go. First, is Jesus referring to his imminent resurrection? Well, in verse 18, the personal pronoun I certainly points in that direction. Contextually, when Jesus refers to the coming of the Holy Spirit in the upper room, he emphasizes that the Holy Spirit is a distinct person from himself. So when Jesus uses the word I, he seems referring to himself and not the Spirit. Jesus does not use I to refer to the Holy Spirit, even though they are both God. I refers to Jesus. So again, verse 18, when Jesus says, I will come to you, the most natural reading is that Jesus will come. Now contrast that with verse 16, where Jesus referred to the Spirit as another helper. Jesus proceeds in verse 17 to refer to the Spirit with a third person pronoun. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. And the same holds true for the Father. Jesus does not use I to refer to the Father. If you look, for instance, at verse 26, Jesus clearly distinguishes between three distinct persons. But the helper of the Holy Spirit... Him the Father will send in my name. He will teach you all things and bring all things to your remembrance, all that I have said to you. So, the Holy Spirit is named. The Father is named. 
And Jesus uses the pronoun he to refer to the Father. And then Jesus distinguishes himself from both, referring to himself as I. So contextually, when Jesus insists in verse 18, I will not leave you as orphans, I will come to you, the I is most naturally taken as a reference to Jesus. Now, verse 19 seems to confirm this interpretation. Yet a little while, and the world will see me no more, but you will see me because I live, you also will live. And that seems to refer to the resurrected Jesus. You will see me. We never see the Spirit But the disciples did indeed see the resurrected body of Jesus. Additionally, his emphasis on live also seems to point to his resurrection. Our resurrection, our life is guaranteed in his resurrection. So when he lives, we live. That's what he's saying. So, yes, indeed, verse 18, I think should be taken as a reference to Jesus returning to his own at his resurrection. He will not leave them orphaned in the world. He is coming back. And truth be told, he's coming back rather quickly in three days. So, is that all there is to it? Should we just embrace option one and just forget about the other two? Well, I don't think it's quite that simple. Yes, indeed, verse 18 does seem to point to the resurrection. I will come to you, but I think there's more to it. And let me explain the second option. Could Jesus actually also be referring to the Holy Spirit in verse 18? When he says the disciples will not be orphaned, the answer, I think, is yes. Let me tell you why. First, the context seems to refer to believers other than the immediate disciples. The 11 disciples had the privilege of seeing the resurrected Jesus. But not all believers have that privilege. So look at verse 21. Whoever, not just the eleven, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me, and he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Well, the whoever refers to all believers. That's not just the eleven. Whoever loves Jesus, whoever sets about to obey his commands, well, wouldn't that include us? Wouldn't that include me? Are we loved by the Father? If that's the case, Jesus says, I will love him and I will manifest myself to him. Jesus will not leave those whom he loves orphaned in the world. But I have never seen Jesus in his resurrected body, have you? Again, in verses 22 and 23, the context is speaking of a broader group of believers than merely the disciples who witnessed the resurrection. The contrast is between the world and the believer. Let's read verse 22. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, 
how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? So Judas identifies two groups. You got us and you got the world. And Judas is probably thinking of the us in terms of his disciples, but Jesus expands that group enormously. Verse 23, Jesus answered him, If anyone, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. So the us for Jesus isn't just the 11, it's anyone at any time who loves Jesus and keeps his word. Well, that has to be more than just those men in the upper room. That's us. If we love him and keep his word, then the Father loves us. And the Father and the Son will come and make their home with him. That sounds like no believer anywhere will ever be orphaned in the world. Now, of course, Jesus does not here refer specifically to the Holy Spirit indwelling us, but the point is, he's referring to some other, some others than just the eleven. And he's referring to something other than just his bodily resurrection. He here refers to his coming to his own, and he includes all believers. And again, he's just told us back in verses 16 through 17 that the Spirit is coming. And that Spirit, he says, will dwell with you and will be in you. So, put it all together, Jesus does not grant all of us resurrection experiences like we've experienced the body of Jesus Christ, but his Spirit does come to permanently indwell us. And when that Spirit comes, guess what else we get? The Father and the Son come to make their home with us. The Spirit, the Father, and the Son all come to dwell with us. That's why Jesus can say, my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. So, contextually, when Jesus says, I will not leave you as orphans, I will come to you, it does indeed seem to refer to more than just the 11 who experienced the resurrection It refers to all believers who experience the coming of the Spirit. Now, let me give you a further reason why I think Jesus is referring to the coming of the Spirit in verse 18. And that reason concerns the broader context and subsequent resurrection appearances. If you look back at verse 18 again, this is the verse we're trying to sort out. I will not leave you as orphans, I will come to you. Okay, that does indeed refer to the resurrection of Jesus. We've established that. But let's think about the resurrection appearances. Jesus doesn't stay for very long. And we all know that he's soon going to ascend into the heavens. Those resurrection appearances were sporadic and they were brief. When Jesus appeared to Mary, he told her, stop clinging to me. Why? He has to ascend to the Father. When Jesus appeared to the two disciples on the road to Emmaus, Luke tells us their eyes were open, they recognized him, and he disappeared. Jesus appeared briefly to the ten disciples, and Thomas was not there. It was some eight days before he showed up again. 
Jesus instructed the disciples to go north to Galilee where they would visit him on a mountaintop. And here he would give them the great commission. But Jesus did not travel with the disciples back to Galilee as he had done for three years of public ministry. They traveled alone. So when you read the resurrection accounts, clearly something has changed. Jesus is not nearly as accessible as he was before his cross. Think about how accessible Jesus was before he died. Well, at this point, after the resurrection, he is preparing the disciples for his ascension, and he is going to leave the planet behind. In fact, later in the chapter, Jesus clarifies that even though he will return again at the resurrection, actually, that's kind of like a stopping point on the way. Ultimately, his destination is to return to the Father. Look at verse 28. You heard me say to you, I am going away and I will come to you. Okay, pause. Does that refer simply to his coming back in the resurrection? Well, keep reading. If you love me, you would have rejoiced. Why? Because I am going to the Father. For the Father is greater than I. Well, that sounds like the ascension. The resurrection and the ascension are like two stages of a single journey. And we know where Jesus is going ultimately. He's returning to the Father. So given all that, wouldn't you have to conclude that Jesus' orphan analogy is a bit suspect if it refers merely to his resurrection appearances. His ultimate destination is the Father. So how do a brief few visits constitute not leaving someone orphan in the world? When you take an orphan into your home, the whole point is to make him a permanent member of your family. You commit to being a permanent father or mother to that child. You are bringing that child into a permanent embrace. But in the upper room discourse, and again in the resurrection appearances, Jesus prepares his disciples for his long departure. What sort of a person adopts a child and then leaves the child behind? Well, Jesus isn't going to leave the child behind permanently when you consider that at the ascension, the Father and the Son will send the Spirit. And with the Spirit, they will come and make their abode with those orphans. And that is what Jesus has been explaining to the disciples in the upper room. Look back at verses 16 and 17. And I will ask the Father... And he will give you another comforter. Why? To be with you forever. Not a few sporadic occurrences. To be with you forever. Even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him. That's the spirit for he dwells with you and will be in you. And that is the hope of every orphan. They need a forever Family. If you spend any time around the adoption community, you know that a very common phrase is one's forever family. That's how the community refers to a child who is permanently placed with a family. He is in his forever family. 
And Jesus is clearly talking about him being with us forever. He will not leave us as orphans. He will not merely appear to us a sporadic few times and then disappear for good. He will not abandon his first century disciples. He will not abandon any of his children. The Spirit is the guarantee that we will not be orphaned in a hostile world. The Spirit is the guarantee that we have been adopted in verse 18. Now, just to confirm this, let's cross-reference at this point with Romans chapter 8. Shall we go there? Romans chapter 8. Here Paul will pick up on the idea of adoption into the family of God by the Spirit. Now in the first seven chapters of Romans, Paul mentions the Holy Spirit four times. Does that surprise you? Four times in the first seven chapters. In chapter 8, Paul mentions the Holy Spirit 20 times. Five times more than the previous seven chapters combined. Roughly one time every two verses. Romans 8 just feels like a rushing mighty wind. It feels like Pentecost just sweeping through our souls. Now observe how the Spirit is the one who changes our status from orphans to adopted sons of God. Look at verse 15. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear... But you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Do you realize that every time you breathe God's name, Father, when you pray, you're acclaiming your adoption? The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. When you come to Christ, you are no longer orphaned in the world. Paul puts it dramatically. It's as if we lived under the spirit of slavery and fear. It's a frightening thing to be orphaned in the world. We live under the tyranny of sin. We are slaves to the devil. But the spirit is the one who comes along and just changes our status. When the spirit reaches down and possesses us, we have now every right to call God our father and treat him as a father The Spirit is the guarantee. Now, when family is adopted here on earth, there was a whole lot of paperwork that guarantees the orphan's new status. I'm sure the Chins can tell you all about that. A whole lot of paperwork. And we have some friends who adopted a child, and the lawyer made a mistake. And he filled out some of that paperwork inaccurately. And when the papers were first served to the biological father in prison... He ignored them. But after catching the air, the lawyer had to resubmit the papers. And this time, the father, in prison, claimed he wanted the child, although he hadn't paid a dime in child support. Well, the whole matter had to go to trial. And our friend's lawyer successfully argued that the child had indeed been abandoned by his biological father. The day came at long last when our friends got a new birth certificate. Imagine that. The birth certificate had a new name on it. My friend's last name. It was as if that child had always belonged to that particular family. The birth certificate was the guarantee. Now, that's reassuring. 
But there is something a whole lot more reassuring. When we are adopted into the family of God, yes, indeed, we do get that new birth certificate. Your name is actually written down in the Lamb's Book of Life, but you get something more than that. What you get is the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. That's what Paul is saying. The Holy Spirit comes to the orphan. The Holy Spirit possesses us. Jesus said, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Well, again, those resurrection appearances were important. Jesus returned to the disciples, but the permanent adoption of orphans involves the Holy Spirit claiming us as God's children. That's verse 16. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Imagine the Holy Spirit as your lawyer in court saying, He is mine. He is mine. So, with all that in place, let's go back to John 14, and let's summarize what we've discovered. Jesus said, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Well, I think that points to the resurrection. I will come to you, Jesus said. But I think it also points to the permanent coming of the Holy Spirit for all believers, But here was our third option. Could it also refer to the second coming of Jesus Christ? And I think the answer is also yes. And why am I saying that? Well, look back at verse 1 and notice the broader context. Jesus said, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again. And I will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. Now Jesus knew the disciples would soon sink into despair. He is going to die. But wait, his death was actually a return to his Father's house. His death was a necessary prerequisite for his return to glory, where he would prepare a permanent dwelling place for his children. Now, just as surely as Jesus was going to leave, just as surely he says, I will come again. And verse 3 spoke of his second coming. I will come again and take you to myself that where I am you may be also. Well, does that sound like the words of a man who prepares to abandon his children in the world? Or one who has come to adopt orphans permanently? Did you know that quite literally in many countries of the world, adoptive parents are required to come twice? This is not true in China where we adopted, but it is true in many parts of the world. They come and make an initial visit. They fill out all kinds of paperwork and they meet the child and they pay the adoption fees and they go through all the government red tape and then they go back home. In the meantime, everything's getting processed and then they get their travel date and they come back. And once they come back and their second coming, as it were, they come and they possess that child permanently. That happens all the time when it comes to adoption. Now, guess what the parents do in between those visits? You know what they do in between those visits? They prepare a room in their house. They prepare a permanent dwelling place. 
Very often, adopted kids will come home to a fully decorated bedroom. They have clothes in the drawer and hanging up in the closet. They have the toys in the basket. They have their own bed waiting there with clean sheets. Everything is just prepared ahead of time. It's a beautiful thing. And contextually, Jesus is speaking and preparing for us a permanent dwelling place. So again, in verse 18, he promises, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Well, if that's true, where is he? Well, on the one hand, verse 19 spoke of his resurrection. He lived and returned to his own. And that's why our first options seem correct. But look at verse 20. In that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you and me and I in you. Well, that sounds like how the chapter began. Jesus will return to the Father to prepare a place for us, and that's where he is right now. And look again at the end of verse 23. He will come to him, we will come to him and make our home with him. And doesn't that statement echo the way the chapter began? Jesus went to prepare a place for us in the Father's home, but he insisted in verse 3, I will come again, and I will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. Now, that doesn't sound to me like it was fulfilled in a few brief resurrection appearances before Jesus ascended into the clouds. The whole context tells you there's a whole lot more to this. Jesus is figuring out a way to make this adoption permanent and is dwelling with us in the Father's house permanent. I mean, if Jesus is just going to leave us behind as an orphan again, when he ascends up to heaven, what does this even mean? I'm going to come and I'm going to bring you home to my Father's house. So, look again at verse 18. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. What does that mean? Well, I think it means three things. First of all, Jesus did not stay dead. And that's the foundation for everything else. If Jesus stays dead, there is no hope of any kind of adoption. But Jesus doesn't stay dead. He resurrected and he returned. And he returned in a body and the disciples saw him. And that resurrection body actually is a guarantee that we too will be resurrected. Second, it also means that Jesus has sent the spirit of adoption to possess us forever. He will never abandon us on the street or on a park bench or on a metro system in the inner city like so many orphans in the world. In fact, we already have a new birth certificate when we are born again. And we already have a member of the Godhead indwelling us and guaranteeing our permanent resurrection and adoption. Paul also says in Romans 8, in a verse that we didn't read, that our permanent adoption ultimately involves also the redemption of our bodies. Our bodies will be redeemed. And that, of course, was guaranteed by Christ's resurrection. So, is Jesus referring to his resurrection? Yes. Is he referring to the coming of the Spirit? Yes. But third, it also means that Jesus is coming again. What kind of adoptive parent goes through all the trouble and all the expense and all the mountains of paperwork never to come permanently for the child? Of course he's coming again. 
He will not leave us as orphans. This is what he promised. He will come again and he will redeem our bodies that he might live with us forever. So friends, if all that is true, and I think it's all true, how do we then live out the reality of our adoption? How do we live out this reality? And the answer is in verses 21 through 24, which we will just read again, and I'll just make a brief comment, and then we'll be done. Verse 21, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. And my father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. And the word that you hear is not mine, but the father's who sent me. So what is the answer? Here's the question I put to you. How do we live out our adoption? If you've all been adopted, how do you live out that adoption? Well, Jesus said a lot right there, but let me summarize it. Love God and keep his commandments. That's what he's saying. Love God and keep his commandments. When you have been adopted into a new family, you do indeed have new obligations, you actually have a new obligation to love your new parents. And your obligation is to keep the commandments of your new parents. Now, let me just clarify, Jesus is not teaching work salvation. We don't become children of God by obeying all of His commandments and trying harder and harder to love him until we finally achieve salvation. Not at all. That's not what he's saying. We love him because he first loved us. And we obey him because he has already brought us into his family. My adopted son did not have to obey any of my rules or even love me before we adopted him. He had no idea who I was. And by the way, I talked with him about this sermon twice this week, so he's good. I say, can I preach this sermon? He says, yeah, Dad, you can preach this sermon. Okay. <laughs> but think of that. I mean, we were like, oh, that, that, that kid is so obedient. He obeys all my rules. Let's go adopt him. That kid loves me so much. Let's go adopt. That's not how it worked at all. We had this little tiny pixelated picture of him. That's all we had. There were no prerequisites whatsoever that he had to meet. We loved him even before he knew us. And that's the way salvation works, friends. God doesn't adopt us because we kept all of his commandments or loved him perfectly. It doesn't work that way at all. It was unconditional love that brought my son into my home. And it's unconditional love and a much greater love that brings a sinner into God's home. That's the gospel. But if, if, in fact, we have been adopted into the family of God, if that has happened to you, then by all means, seek to love him and keep his commandments. Express your new family identity through love and obedience.
Shall we pray together? Our Father, we give you thanks that Jesus has resurrected and has come. And some of our brothers and sisters in Christ have already seen him. We thank you that the Spirit has come, and the Spirit has already come to possess us. And now, Lord, as we come to this table, we thank you that we can express our faith that Christ will come again and will enjoy this meal with us. Encourage us now, Lord, in this communion supper to think on Christ and to relish our adoption and to allow ourselves to be controlled by the spirit of our adoption. And we pray it for Christ's sake. Amen.